Chapter Thirty Three, Part Two of Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Margaret Espayat. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume Two, by Moncure Conway. Chapter Thirty Three, Part Two. I learned either from Dr. Carlyle or from Carlyle himself that the investments of the latter were many years before made in America, and that when the war broke out there he did not withdraw them. He had his reward, and had just received six thousand pounds from Charles Butler, who attended to his affairs in New York. April 6th. Went to dinner at Erskine's. Present. Lord Neve. Sir David Dundas, once in Palmerston's ministry, Admiral Ramsay, Dr. Carlyle, Mr. and Mrs. Patterson, and Lady Blank, beside whom I sat, and who was clever. Carlyle appeared happier than I had ever seen him, and was hardly equaled by Lord Neve, most famous of table-talkers. Dundas was a little pompous, reminding me of Edward Everett, whom he knew and admired, but had a goodly number of good anecdotes. After the ladies had left the table, the dignified Dundas became more free and easy, and told us of the epitaph of Pitcairn, the line-in doctor. Prospicite virginis, retrospicite matronis, e lugite. Lord Neve laid on this, an epitaph he professed to have found on a bibulous old Scotchman named Gladstone. Bacco et tobacco nimium indulgebat. Dundas told the story of old Dr. Pars being unable to sleep part the night because awakened by a doubt whether the word but in a Latin epitaph should have been at or said. Lord Neve and Carlyle thought Parr was an ass but Dundas told the story of his having said that somebody, I think Dr. Johnson, may have gone into Abraham's bosom, but if so, he would certainly kick that patriarch's guts out. Smollett was talked of, and Carlyle thinks Humphrey Clinker one of the greatest books ever written. Nothing by Dante or anybody else ever surpassed the scene where Humphrey goes into the smithy made for him in an old house, and whilst beating the iron, the woman, who has lost her husband and become deranged, comes forward and talks to him as her husband, and says, "'John, they told me you were dead. How glad I am you have come!' And his tears fall down and bubble on the hot iron. Carlyle said he remembers no happier day than when, as a boy, he went off into the fields and read Roderick Random and how inconsolable he was that he could not get the second volume. Lord Neve said it was difficult to know what to do or say about great books that contain impurities, or how to advise young women. Carlyle said he thought they should be encouraged to read, but not talk about them. Mr. Erskine himself said but little, evidently preoccupied with his desire to get the full music out of each guest a descendant of the Earl of Mar, and kinsman of the famous Erskine. I have no doubt he was a finer man than either. Carlyle told me Erskine began life as a lawyer, 
but left that for religion. He wrote much on this subject, but lost his Calvinism by going to study in Germany. He was not now in public favor because of his skepticism, but Carlyle held him in high esteem. When we went into the drawing-room we found there Lady Cirrus and Miss Dobson and others. Carlyle and Lord Neve kept up a grand conversation, surrounded by a half-dozen people. Carlyle, appealed to about the French emperor, said he thought him a swindler, an intensified pig. Lord Neve thought there was a swinish and asinine element in the human bosom, which naturally had its external response. Someone thought the emperor had done a great deal to rule over France so long. Carlyle said it only proved the length of ear of those who recognized a swindler as an emperor. All the men in place in France were such as a man would kick if they wished to black his boots. If the French of old times were alive, Louis-Napoleon would long before have been beheaded. Matthew Arnold says that in France England had lost her prestige. It shows that Matthew is a good deal of a goose with considerable sense at bottom. The less prestige England has, the better. Prestige is only another word for humbug. The Frenchmen say so and so of us. Very well. The fact us remains the same, whatever you say of that fact. Sir David Dundas spoke of a commission once appointed to select four statues to be placed in front of the British Museum, of which he was a member. Macaulay was on it. They were not confined to England or to any nation or age. They agreed upon Shakespeare at once, then on Newton. About Bacon there was a moment's hesitation, when Macaulay started forward and vehemently urged him as one of the greatest of mankind. Milton was the last chosen. Carlyle said it was a mistake to put Bacon before Milton. Sir David demurred a little. Carlyle thought, and Lord Neve rather agreed with him, that Bacon was much overrated. Whilst he was in full glory, the greatest discovery of his age was made at his very door, that of Kepler, and he had no eye to see it. Referring to the line, brightest, wisest, meanest of mankind, he thought it worthless. The qualities and defects named were impossible in the same individual. Carlyle found Dundas sensitive to Homeric criticism and rather maliciously insisted that Homer was the name ultimately given to a joint stock company of ballad singers. Carlyle said, Clough was as fine a soul as England had produced of late, and would have come to something considerable had he not died. I was entertained at the house of Lady Anna Campbell, to whom I had been made known by the Duke and Duchess of Argyll. She was surrounded by guests, among them Lady Wynne and Sir Henry and Lady Moncrief. There was no enthusiasm about Carlyle in the company. It was impossible not to remark the snobbery to which nature is easily turned by human selection, which evolves much more beauty in the high rank than beneath it. Nor is there any such compensation for this as proverbial Tupper thought when he connected superiority in a woman with plainness of face. These noble ladies, with their masses of auburn hair, rosy cheeks, and superb necks, were intellectual, 
well informed in political history, and sympathetically interested in the anti-slavery struggle in America. It was for me curious that a company so brilliant should break up as it did. A bell was rung, six liveried servants came in, and Sir Henry read a long chapter from the Bible and made a long prayer, which carried me back to my early days in old Virginia. Sir Henry Moncrieff himself was indeed a fair type of the gentleman of Scottish descent who had originally settled our neighborhood on the Rappahannock. I had three days before been taken by Dr. John Carlyle to the Signet's Library, where David Lang, the librarian, and Carlyle's university assessor, made some search about those families in Virginia. We finally reached the conclusion that they were transported after the Kenmore and Mar Rebellion, 1715-16. to 16. Sunday morning I preached at St. Mark's Unitarian Church. If Sir Henry's prayer had carried me to Old Virginia, the hymns and atmosphere at St. Mark's carried me back to Boston. Dr. William Smith, translator of Fichte, took me out to his country house to dine, and his daughter Lizzie, now the wife of Professor Kennedy of London, in singing for me the old Scotch songs, looked like the last to whom those of Burns were written but she also carried me back to our Boston circle by her perfect interpretations of Mozart, Beethoven, Bach, and Mendelssohn. Carrying numerous letters of introduction, I visited Stirling Castle, then went on to the University of St. Andrews, where I was shown about by Lord Archibald Campbell, the Duke of Argyll's son. I dined with Robert Chambers, a hale old man dividing his interest between golf and spiritualism. He was hospitable and entertaining, but I made up my mind that he never wrote The Vestiges of Creation. The death of Mrs. Carlyle, April 21st, while her husband was still in Scotland, was an event which I felt would be so terrible to him that I feared he might not survive it. I gave him a note she had written to me at Edinburgh in response to some particulars I had sent her on the evening of Carlyle's address. It was, after Carlyle's death, returned to me by Froude, and is as follows. 5. Chain Row, Chelsea, 5th of April, 1866 My dear Mr. Conway, The disposition to write me a little note was a good inspiration, and I thank you for it or rather, accepting it as an inspiration, I thank Providence for it. Providence, immortal gods, superior powers, destinies, whichever be the name you like best. Indeed, by far the most agreeable part of this flare-up of success, to my feeling, has been the enthusiasm of personal affection and sympathy on the part of his friends. I haven't been so fond of everybody and so pleased with the world since I was a girl as just in these days, when reading the letters of his friends, your own included. I am not very well, having done what I do at every opportunity, gone off my sleep, so I am preparing to spend a day and night at Windsor for a change of atmosphere, moral as well as material. I am in a hurry, but couldn't refrain from saying, Thank you, and all good be with you. Sincerely yours, Jane W. Carlyle. 
When I gave Carlyle the letter, he said it was the last she ever wrote except one to himself. He was distressed that she had not received his last letter. It was written at Scotbrig, the letter which, of all he had ever written, he would have wished her to read, but had been delayed beyond the one post necessary, and he found it on her table, there placed, while she lay dead in the hospital. He told me again of Edward Irving's introducing him to her, and of their marriage. We had a small patrimony, but I had taken up a standard of literature, which was by no means the paying kind pecuniarily, and our means grew smaller daily whilst I worked. Well, well, we had heavy trials, trials of a kind different from those which commonly befall people, but in and through them all she never lost her bright smile and her faith. When she was herself ill and suffering severe pain, she was never gloomy. And so she went on through life, shielding me from all the sharp corners of everyday life. And now it is all gone. One instant, and all one's life is shown to be the merest gossamer which a breath may sweep away for ever. He then took me out to the gardens, where we smoked together. He said he must either get at some work or die. Only work could make life sufferable for him now. We then took a long walk in Hyde Park, where he asked me about American affairs, and talked in his usual way about universal suffrage. He said he did not see why votes should be given in America to all the white sots in creation, and not to the Negro. But it was a reductio ad absurdum. He spoke of the Catholic priest in Ireland, who had been the only man, beside Emerson, who made response to Sartor Resartus, when it was appearing in Fraser. Carlyle, when in Ireland, had visited the priest, and found him engaged in some religious exercise or penance in his garden, which required that he should not speak. So Carlyle had to wait for some time, and the conversation amounted to nothing though the priest was pleasant enough, and had a good head. Froude told me that when Carlyle returned from Scotland, he went around Hyde Park with the driver who had driven his wife there on the fatal day, making him show every point in the drive, the place where the dog had been run over, where he had been hailed and told that the lady was fainting, ending at the hospital, where he gazed on the couch where she was laid. Carlyle expressed his desire that I should come as often as I could to see him, and I did so. Occasionally Ruskin came, and it was pleasant to see how serene and beaming was his face, so worn and troubled in appearance, when he entered that room at Chelsea. "'Mr. Carlyle,' he said one evening, "'how few people I know who really can sit down at their own little table and pour out their cup of tea from their own little teapot,' and there think and say what is to them true without regard to the world's clamor. Carlyle said, That used to be the characteristic of the English people. Whenever you had an Englishman, you had a man with an opinion of his own. But one doesn't find it so now. The conversation fell upon the cruelty of sports, and Ruskin referred with enthusiasm to Emerson's lines entitled Forbearance. Hast thou named all the birds without a gun? Loved the wood-rose, and left it on its stalk? 
at rich men's table eaten bread and pulse unarmed faced danger with a heart of trust and loved so well a high behavior in man or maid that thou from speech refrained nobility more nobly to repay o oh, be my friend and teach me to be thine ruskin's talk was eloquent but i found it at times hazy as i was this morning labeling some minerals it occurred to me why haven't you something better to do than labeling minerals were you the duke of so-and-so would you not be doing nobler work then he sped off to something different indicating however that he felt somehow that a man ought to have some relation to the affairs of his country carlyle did not respond to this one evening the conversation related to the clergy i mentioned when charles kingsley was spoken of the large reputation he had in america through his books alton locke and yeast carlyle told us of kingsley's father a good old squire and of his mother a lady who once visited him bringing her young son charles she was intelligent and of some beauty serious and moist-eyed looking as if she had emotions she did not care to utter probably charles and henry inherited their ability from her when she came with young charles he sat in absolute silence during the conversation and presently turned aside and wrote something when charles first preached his liberalism some one eminent in the church denounced him for heresy at that the elder kingsley was much grieved and charles said to any doubter of his orthodoxy mentiris impudentissime thenceforth a decline ruskin thought there were some good things in alton locke but the poor do not always communicate the smallpox nor is it the greatest trouble of life not to be able to wed a dean's daughter i objected to the falsity of making research end in a church rectorship ruskin and carlyle then spoke at length of the troubles that outspoken clergymen like colenso had suffered dean stanley said ruskin got on more easily by consummate tact and uttering his heresies in the least startling manner or even in a way that rendered them least visible at the time they were uttered he honored stanley for the high position he took in standing by colenso i think carlyle outgrew some of his heroes when germany conferred the order of civil merit on him he was rather irritated by it when i mentioned it he said he should have been as well satisfied if they had sent him a few pounds of good tobacco he had said to varnhagen von ense who called on him with thanks of all germany for the life of friedrich i have had no satisfaction in it at all only labor and sorrow what the devil had i to do with your friedrich anyhow my first misgivings about cromwell came from carlyle i had got high ideas of him from the last lecture on heroes and hero-worship but when i said something in that vein it was plain that he had moderated if not lost his old enthusiasm for cromwell he spoke of cromwell's power of the strong nose 
buttressing the forehead of him. But the only other comment was that it was a grievous thing to break all of the ties binding men to an existing order, whatsoever its evils. In his lectures on heroes there is at every turn a ring of lingering Calvinism. The Cromwellian War was the struggle of men intent on the real essence of things against men intent on the semblances and forms of things. But when the discovery was made that Puritanism did not represent the real essence of things, but dogmatized on things of which it was most ignorant, Carlyle had more consideration for the semblances. We were once talking about John Calvin. About the burning of Servetus by Calvin, Carlyle said, Probably there is no greater proof of a man's real belief in a thing than that he is willing to burn his fellow-man for the sake of it. I expressed satisfaction that there no longer existed any such real belief. He then went on to speak of the English church as the apotheosis of decency. Speaking of Swedenborg, he described the old inn in the city where Swedenborg had his first vision. I stopped there when I first came by coach to London. Swedenborg was just crazy enough to be unable to distinguish between inward and outward impressions. The nervous system is so mysterious that I would not assert that his alleged knowledge of the fire at Stockholm, when he was at a long distance, is impossible. But I have not seen sufficient evidence of it. Carlyle was very compassionate. I well remember the wrath with which he spoke one evening to Mr. Ruskin and myself, of seeing at the zoological gardens living mice put into the cages of snakes. He watched a rattlesnake, not yet hungry, but with its cruel, glittering eye fixed on the mouse, whose every limb was trembling with terror. Such laws of this universe, as the instinct of snakes to prey on mice, did not silence Carlyle's protests against cruelty. It was largely through his influence that vivisection was restricted. When John Burroughs, laureate of the American birds, went with me one evening to Chelsea, Carlyle astonished us by his knowledge of birds and love of them. The Mavis he thought next to the nightingale in song, and then came the blackbird, not of that species noted for his accomplishment in picking holes in things. The lark, though monotonous, is always pleasing. He found it a kind of welcomer wherever he went. The linnet was a pleasant bird. The London house-sparrow was impudent as could be, and would hardly get out of one's path. He imitated its pert look and popping up of its head admirably. He remembered the dignified unconcern of a cat passing close by about five hundred of them chattering away about their affairs, and bethought him of the Arabian legend that Solomon's temple was erected under the chirping of thirty thousand sparrows, all met to give a joint disapproval of the project. Lee Hunt used to send him here and there to listen to the singing of the nightingale. But he could not hear one until on a certain day there came a song which he recognized by Goethe's description. He compared the poet to it, a voice sounding amid the din like the nightingale, 
touching and strong. These words told the whole thing. It was not sad, but pathetic and somewhat piercing. It is incomparable. He listened to it fifteen minutes, but never heard the nightingale again. It is passing away from about London. He heard of one lately singing in Green Park. It doesn't go farther north than the bottom of Yorkshire. It is said it cannot find farther up what it requires to eat. Alexander Ireland told me that, after visiting Carlisle in 1833, at Craig and Puttock, Emerson met him, Ireland, with the exclamation, What a wonderful child! Never was Carlyle better labelled, unless by Emerson's words after his friend's death. He was a trip-hammer with an Aeolian attachment. The child in Carlyle was wounded when, 1848, Emerson was in his house unable to share his reaction, and even carrying off the whole Carlylean congregation. The child in him wept in secret, but his biographer brought the ebullition to light to the distress of Emerson's friends in England. I knew them well, and was among them when Froude's work was published. Although I regretted that the private entry should appear without explanation, it was of too much historical interest to be suppressed. I reproduce it because long acquaintance with the English friends of Carlyle and Emerson made clear to me the circumstances which, for the memory of both and their fifty years of friendship, should now be related. The entry, dated February ninth, 1848, is as follows. Emerson is now in England, in the North, lecturing to mechanics institutes, etc., in fact, though he knows it not, to a band of intellectual canaille. Came here and stayed with us some days on his first arrival. Very exotic. Of smaller dimensions, too, and differed much from me as a gymnosophist sitting idle on a flowery bank may do from a wearied worker and wrestler passing that way with many of his bones broken. Good of him I could get none, except from his friendly looks and elevated, exotic, polite ways, and he would not let me sit silent for a minute. Solitary on that side, too, then? Be it so, if so it must be. But we will try a little further. Lonelier man is not in this world that I know of. It was a terrible trial for a man who, after slow years of toil and poverty, had gained the applause of the best heads in his country, to find himself in the position of a lost leader. But it was just that which Emerson's presence in England revealed to Carlyle. The overthrow of kings on the continent he welcomed with his adherents, because they were sham kings, and in his vision he beheld them succeeded by real kings, by Cromwells or Friedrichs, but his flock dreamed only of democracy filling their place, and to Carlyle that meant anarchy. Though John Stuart Mill said, Carlyle turned against all his friends, I think the friends had shaped in themselves out of his French Revolution, and his Cromwell, a Carlyle that never existed. In those works he merely cleared sham potentates from thrones they were usurping, that the real kings might sit on them. In their eagerness to find a new leader, they also shaped an Emerson that did not exist, 
for Emerson freely declared his distrust of masses, and his desire to see individuals developed out of them. Democracy in America meant a majority wielded by slavery. But while presenting no system of his own, Emerson refused to accept that of Carlyle. He did not believe that the ideal kingdom was at hand, nor lose his hopes of mankind. This was enough for the Carlylians amid the thunder of toppling thrones and breaking chains. Although Carlyle believed that Emerson's audiences in the provincial institutes were canile, he knew that in and around London it was the best people who were carried away by the enthusiasm for Emerson. The Martineaus, Hennels, Marion Evans, George Eliot, Matthew Arnold, the Howitts, Sir Arthur Phelps, Sir A. Allison, W. E. Forrester, M.P., Richard Cobden, M.P., W. J. Fox, M.P., J. S. Mill, Arthur Clough, Monckton Milnes, Lord Houghton, The Carpenters, Dr. Chapman, and others. J. A. Froude met him at Oxford, and his life, he declared, was influenced by him. It was impossible for the childlike heart of Carlyle not to feel the pain of this break between himself and his circle. Mrs. Carlyle was in such distress that she complained to Espinasse that he talked too much about Emerson. But, says Carlyle in his loneliness, we will try a little further. A resolution speedily justified. Emerson, surrounded by those whom Carlyle had awakened, was everywhere affirming his love and confidence in him, extolling his honesty and grandeur, in uttering his thought even when unwelcome to his friends. Carlyle could hardly fail to know this. He never knew all that Emerson had done for him when he was in poverty. I heard him say that there was something material in the way America treated me, but he never knew that the money sent for him for his first books was got by Emerson and his friend Dr. LeBaron Russell, going from house to house, man to man, fairly compelling them to subscribe for the volumes. His love of Emerson was never really disturbed. He spoke of him as the cleanest intellect on this planet. In 1880 I called on him before a journey to America, and as I was leaving he said, Give my love to Emerson. I still think of his visit to us in Craig and Puttock as the most beautiful thing in my experiences there. When I returned from America in 1881, Carlyle had sunk very low. His mind was yet in fair strength, and he was reading over the German books which had influenced him in youth. His eightieth birthday had brought him many letters and telegrams of congratulation. It was one of the unpleasantest days I ever passed. Few people know how miserable a thing is life when the strength has gone out of it. Some of my friends lately sent for a doctor here, but it would have been just as useful to pour my ailments into the shaggy ear of a jackass. I said to him, the only benefit you could do me would be to mingle some arsenic with this cup of tea, but as the law forbids that, there is no reason for your remaining professionally. He was a sensible sort of man. End of chapter 33, part 2